Um, there is a Band-Aid on my eye. I don't know if you can see it, and it is splattered with blood that is trying to make its way through. What happened this morning is I was in a rush, and I was running a little bit late, and so I gave Harlow, my daughter, a kiss on the forehead, and when I did, I was in her room, and, and I was trying to hurry, so I swung to leave, and when I did, she thought it would be funny, I guess, to push the door a little bit more closed, and so my head hit the door, and um, it started like blood coming down, and I was like, all right, I'm going to put a Band-Aid on it real quick, and... Um, and then she was kind of like embarrassed about it. And I could tell she was like working through like, I just really want to run away from the situation. Like, what did I do here? And so I'm going to leave. And as I'm leaving, she runs out the door and she says, Daddy, Daddy, come here. I want to show you this. I go, what? She's got this little tiny little cut on her finger. You could barely see anything. And she's like, see, I have one too. And I'm thinking on the way here, like, why, like, why did she do that? And it was like she, she was trying to say, me too. And, there's part, and I just dismissed it, like, okay, whatever. But there's part of us that have these wounds. And we have pain and we have suffering. And we're looking for somebody so that we could go to and say, yeah, me too. And we always have that in Christ. And he always has it to a greater degree than we do. His wounds, the pain that he felt on the cross, the loss the suffering is far greater than ours to an exponential degree. So that means that we, he knows what we are going through, and we can identify with him. And he never dismisses us. He always makes the time because he sees in us that the wound is real and it hurts. And today we are starting, well, we're continuing back into our series in the book of Psalms called the Psalms of Ascents. And these are pilgrim songs. The word ascent means a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage up somewhere, going somewhere. So we are on this pilgrimage to our homeland. And uh, they, throughout these songs, they're going to be songs that we sing that, well, today we arrive at the first psalm that tells us to praise God. It's, our, it's the fifth one. And it's interesting that none of these songs of ascent have called us to praise God until now. And the, the specific word it uses is bless him, bless God. Whenever you're reading the Psalms and it says bless him, it means praise him or worship him. So the question is, what is praise and worship? Praise and worship is the explosion of joy that is within you. When you have joy in you and it has nowhere else to go, the end result, the finish line of it is praise and worship. And if God is calling you to praise him, it's because he's giving you something to take joy in. Today, what I'm proposing is that when joy is cornered, when it's cornered by trials, pain, suffering, loss, a broken heart, when it is cornered, there's a flame that will ignite that will cause an explosion of joy that will lead into praise and worship of God. The series that we're in is called Playlist, The Road Home. And each year, the Israelites, they would take three pilgrimages, long pilgrimages, all the way to the city of Jerusalem, the city of peace. And then they would go up to the top of Mount Zion, the Mount of Joy, and there they would worship God. Now, notice what the progression is. The traveling leads to peace, 
which then leads to joy, which then leads to worship. And that's what I want to take you on today, and that's what I want to take you through the series. And on the way, in these travels, the psalms or the songs of ascents that are being sung along the way towards the great city of God are songs that are meant to help you get there. Songs that are meant to help you not turn back but to stay looking forward because here's what the songs do. They open up the heavens and they allow you to peer into your future so much so that the future is inhabiting the day. So you are on this pilgrimage and what you need is somehow for the heavens to be rend open for you to be able to get a picture of what is to come, the celestial city of God that will give you peace and joy. And that is what these songs will give you. They'll give you a look into the future that becomes now. They make you homesick for a home that you have never been to, and that is proof that it is your true home. So, what we're going to answer today are three questions. What are we up against on this road? What should we do about it? And what does God do about it? What are we up against What should we do about it, and what should God do about it, or what should you do about it? Here's our psalm. Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. First question, what are you up against? Now first you need to see that this is a communal psalm. So it's not what are you up against, but what are we up against? So why did I make the question, what are you up against? The answer is because, well, we tend to be self-absorbed people. And when I say, what are you up against, you listen better. And, but, I say, but I say this actually for this reason and for this point, to make a point. One of our or your biggest problems in life is that you are so obsessed with yourself that when troubles do come, your self-obsession will be the reason why you are dragged into a living death. The trouble that comes in these psalms are from people. Now, the Hebrew word used here is the same word we use for Adam, for, which means humanity or mankind or man. So what this means is that there is a cosmic war between God and humanity. Because of the selfish ambition in us to desire to take over his throne. So the pilgrim on the way home is caught in between a war between God and the world of men. Every Christian, though, was once an enemy of God. You were at war with God if you were a Christian, but you are no longer And Christ came to change you from being an enemy of God to a friend of God by giving over his life for you. However, there's still a rebellious side to us. It runs deep and it's hidden and it shows itself most in the struggles. So the very first person 
of these people, these atoms that you need to worry about is your old self. There's a psychologist that would say, become a monster and then tame that monster. Christianity says, you already are a monster. And Christ has come to tame you. To switch you. To make you switch sides. To make you stop going to war with God. And to switch over to his side because you finally have seen all the while that he was on your side. You are the beast. He is the beauty that has come from another world to teach you what love is, truly. So through Christ, your war with God has ended and you've switched sides. And now that you have been brought over, you should stay very close to God. However, you need to know this. The world is at war with God. So the closer you are to God, the more heavily you will experience what that war is. Your old self in that war will want to run because you're going to see the other side. And you're going to be tempted and you're going to be flirting with what's on the other side. There's a desire in you to run. And there's a desire in you to wrestle with God and to wrestle with his ways and his word, to not take him for his word. And God knows that about you. In fact, he has called his people Israel, which literally means wrestles with God. So God is saying, yes, I know you will wrestle with me. And I know you need to wrestle this out with me so you will understand. However, what you also need to know is that when Jacob wrestled with God, he walked with a limp for the rest of his life. However... Better to walk with God with a limp than to run into the pits of death and hell. And don't worry about your limp because God is on your side. You have nothing to worry about. He is there. In fact, your limp is probably helping you from running from him because you know you can't get away from him. And if you did, you're going to be vulnerable. So you stay very close to his side. This is him humbling you, taking the self-absorption where you're constantly thinking about yourself and realizing I am not enough to face everything that there is before me. So I need God on my side. And after you are no longer a threat to your own self, you look around and you see, well, humanity now becomes a threat to you. Because humanity wants you to switch back to the other side. People are bad. People are bad. And they're at war with God. And we are to join God in that war, seeking love and justice in a world that's filled with hate and injustice, but disguises their hate and injustice for love and justice. And this means, though, that we're joining him in this war, which means we're in the world, but not of the world. And we are seeking to destroy the old world and the old self by seeking to bring a world of love into this world so that it overwhelms and overtakes the current world and the current self. So we don't run from the world and we don't run from the war. We run right into it, remaining steadfast next to God. Now, there is a part in you that wants to run from the world, to avoid the world, to avoid people. I saw a post on Facebook that said something like this, I protect my peace, and you could substitute joy in there, so I protect my peace and my joy at all costs, so I delete, I block, I disown, I leave, and I ignore. That is not real peace. And that is not true joy. Because peace that needs to be protected is not a true peace. 
True peace is found in the one who protects you. True joy is not found in your circumstance, but the one who gives you joy no matter the circumstance. So we are warriors for love and justice in a world that is trying to steal us away from our God who is joy and peace. But the problem for them is as much as they attack you, what your response ought to be is to run to Him. And when you run to Him, you are filled with more joy and more peace. So when you're backed up against the wall, you say, oh my gosh, I forgot about God. Let me reach out to God. And as soon as you do, you're filled with the joy and peace that you're found in Him. Now, I need to say something here. We need to do a reversal or back up. We live in a nation where it is free to worship whatever you want and whoever you want. You can set up a shrine to anything pretty much. No one that hates Christianity is threatening you tonight to rob you, take from you, pillage from you, take everything from you, including yourself, and throw you in some pit. So how does this chapter apply to us? The culture is at war with you. The culture is a product of people. And so people are raging a secret war with you through the culture, causing you to doubt God, to question His ways, to make you wonder if He really is for you, to make you think He's not on your side. And so if you aren't a Christian, the culture wants you to stay with them and not switch sides. If you are a Christian, the culture is desperately and secretly wanting to move you over to their side. Because they're tired of hearing this talk about the Bible and obeying what the Bible says. The culture is very much okay with love and grace. So long as that love and grace doesn't cause them to be threatened in their ways. But love disrupts everything and grace flips everything over. So to really know love and to really know grace is to completely change their ways. And so if you don't want to change your ways... You don't actually want love and grace from the Bible. You want uh, something fake and different. So our, wor- our verses say that the culture would swallow you up like an earthquake, gone over you like a flood. So, so here's the picture. You're like this bird in a cage. And there are these raging waters, and the earth is quaking, and the waters are about to swallow you up, and the earth is about to swallow you up. And just before it happens, well, that's to come later, but the door opens. But, but this imagery of the water going over you, it literally translates as the water swallowing up or drowning your soul. So, there is more at stake for you than you realize. Your joy is at stake, your peace is at stake, and your very soul is at stake. The culture says love is a feeling. And if you're with someone for 15 years and you don't feel love anymore, not only should you leave them, but you should rejoice in the freedom that you now have because you have left them. But is that right? Are you sure that it won't be destroying your soul to do something like this and destroying your family, your kids, if you do something like this? Are you sure that the culture of your workplace that says success at all costs, win at all costs, isn't destroying your soul and destroying your family? Are you sure you, as a father or a husband, are you sure it's not your responsibility to take the spiritual lead of your family? 
Are you sure that's not harming your soul because that's really the way that God has wired you in harming your family if you don't step up into that role? Are you sure that a little pornography isn't damaging to your soul? Are you sure that it's okay to have sex before marriage? Are you sure that you aren't joining yourself spiritually to that person? The Bible makes this claim that when you, like, you know, do it, the thing, then you are spiritually joined to that person. Are you sure that that's not having an effect on your heart and your soul when you do that? Are you sure that not keeping the Sabbath day as holy doesn't have more than just spiritual implications, but all of life implications? You know, there's something about the spiritual that affects everything. Emotionally, it affects you. Spiritually healthy, you're emotionally healthy. Spiritually healthy, you're socially healthy. You're culturally healthy. I would even argue that you're physically healthy. Because shame and guilt will cause you great stress. And stress is very damaging to your physical health. So if you experience the forgiveness and grace and mercy that comes from Christ, then you will say, I'm free from this. I'm not controlled by this anymore. And then all of a sudden the stress starts going away and you're going to be healthy physically because of it all. Perhaps it turns out following God's ways might just be your best move despite what the culture says. So the culture is your great threat. So what should you do about the threat? Obey the ways of God over and above the ways of the culture. When people frown on this disobedience talk, like, I don't want to hear this talk of disobedience. What they're saying is obey a culture that says don't stand for this obedience talk. (laughs) They're saying obey me as I say don't stand for any obedience. So what should you do about this? The answer in our verses is worship God. Praise is the outpouring of joy that results in you following in the ways of God. Obedience. In other words, praising God and obeying God are both the same thing. So if you have one hand lifted up to God, but the other is living this way that is not following God's ways, it's not true praise. It's like having one hand lifted up in praise and the other is swimming around in sin. So what you do, step one, you just realize simply that God's ways are better than your ways. He's smarter than you. He's wiser than you. Take his advice. Second, obey him, which is your praise. Now, you also have to trust that this is circular, so watch what happens. You want joy, so God says, obey me, and that obedience will produce joy, which will produce worship, which produces more obedience, which produces more joy, which produces more worship, and it continues to grow and grow. Why, why is that? Well, you are designed to live a certain way. And when you live that way, it causes you to become joyful because you are becoming what you're supposed to become. And that erupts in more worship, which produces more obedience. So it builds on itself. Another thing I want you to see is there is a beautiful artistry in the psalm we're looking at. There's a structure, and the structure goes A, B, C, B, A like an outline. And the A's are the presence of God. The B parts are the troubles, the trials, the difficulties you're going through. And right there in the middle at C 
is worship. So what that means is when the world is squeezing you, your response is worship. How do you get there? By you focusing on the A's, the presence of God. When you focus on the presence of God, you're erupting in joy, which produces obedience in you. Because what happens is you get caught in this trap of sin. You're caught in the cage, and the door cannot be opened, and the floods are coming. So what do you do? You follow his ways. He has set you free, and now you follow after him. Now, if you are like me, you are thinking, yeah, that sounds great. I want to obey God. I mean, there's a part of me that really doesn't want to obey God, but there's another part of me that does. And when that part of me that wants to obey God tries, I always seem to fail. So you need the strength to do what he's called you to do and the self-control to not do what he's called you to not do. Those are different things, but they're both obedience. So some of you are probably better at the, the strength part. You're better at doing what he tells you to do. And some of you are better at the self-control, not doing what he told you not to do. There's one thing that you're better at over the other. But which one do you struggle with? And then how do you get what you need to in order to actually obey God? This is our third point, what God does about it all. The answer to how you get the strength and self-control to obey God is this. And I'm going to give a very precise definition. I'm going to say it twice. Worshipful obedience is fueled by joy, and that joy is ignited by remembering how God has rescued you, how he is rescuing you, and how he one day will rescue you. Worshipful obedience is fueled by joy that is ignited with the spark of you remembering and trusting the God who's at your side who rescues you. So when you are up against the wall in sorrow and temptation and suffering and trials, what do you do? You spark the remembrance spark. You remember. It fills you with joy. You bust out of it like you've busted out of a cage and you fly away into this freedom of obedience. So let me just unpack a little bit more of this. You are a joy-seeking creature. And you need joy from God in order to obey God. So how do you enjoy him in a world that's constantly trying to steal him away from you? Well, when you feel like he's being stolen away, you've got to just keep fighting to remember, keep fighting to trust. Remember what he has done for you. This is past, present, and future. This whole gospel series that we spent like four or five months in. You just remember everything I said for those four or five months. You've got everything you need from that series was, is, and will. Everything that he's given you, everything he will do for you, everything he has done for you, everything he's presently doing for you is what causes you to break out of that cage. So when life is difficult and you want to run into unhealthy things, remember and trust. Remember and trust. Remember and trust. Specifically that he's at your side, but even more specifically, on top of that, what does it mean? Well, it means he's a rescuing God. If he's on your side and he's got no power, if he's on your side and he's got no grace, if he's on your side and he, got no, and he has no compassion, he is of no use to you. But if he is the God of compassion and justice and power, well, you have everything you need, whatever you face. And in our verses, 
They aren't pretending like life is easy. They're dealing with the brutal reality of what life is like in this world, and it is described like this. You're in a cage. You are caught like a bird. You are in the teeth of the dragon, stuck. There's nothing you can do about this. So God comes, pries open the mouth of the dragon right before the waters of wrath and death encompass you, and you fly off free. I mean, it is a close call. But he does it. He's the God who is the maker of all things. And if anything catches you in its mouth, he rips the mouth open so you can go free. But as he does this, he is bitten. This is what God does. Christ is the new Adam that goes that, that God, Christ is the new Adam that God goes to war with and crushes instead of you. Christ comes to us who are enemies and at war with God, and he comes as the perfect second Adam. But he, he is crushed as the first Adam, so we can be treated like the perfect second Adam. So your sins on the cross, they are cast upon him. And he is swallowed up by death. And that means at that moment, your sins become swallowed up. And Christ, he's caught in the trap of the cross. Only it was the way that would set you free. And there, as he's caught in this trap, the waters of the wrath for all of your sin are coming upon him. And as they get close, there is no escape, but they swallow him up swallowing him whole so that you could be free. And there he descends down. But then a spark of life, a spark of joy erupts up out of the depths and he breaks through it and rises from the grave. Now let me tell you what that means for you. Because he has descended and ascended, it means you, by faith, join to him. The Holy Spirit lives in you by faith. Here's what that means. The same power that rose him up out of that death, that broke him free from the dragon's teeth, that same power now is available to you. So when you face temptation, you take hold of him who is your great power. When you face trials, you take hold of him who is your great power. When you face everything, you take hold of him. And then your life anthem becomes this, Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, but no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're backed up against the wall, remember that. That will be your spark that ignites the flame of joy in you. And when that happens... Nothing can stand against you because he is right at your side. And you know it in that moment. And so you face whatever there is to face with him in obedience and joy with peace and love and in worship. Let me pray. Father, make this real to us. Make this true to us. Make it not just be words that bounce off of our heads. Make it not just be words that our hearts reject and repel, but make it be words that go in our ears, into our minds, into our hearts, and then out of our hands and feet as we live for you. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the great ways to worship God is through the Lord's Supper. And the reason is because when you obey Him in this way, by taking part, you are weaving yourself into the story of God rescuing you. This is the picture of him at your side. This is a picture of him caught in the cage. This is a picture of him being drowned in the wrath of the Father that you are set free from. So, you guys can stand with me. Um, we're going, to, we're going to sing, and we're going to sing from Psalm 124, what we just went through, and we're going to sing it like we're pilgrims, and as you take your steps up to the bread and to the wine, this is your journey towards the city of God, and as you walk, the heavens are opening, and you're getting to look in to the to the, the one, this feast, where he gave his life, that's pointing to the eternal banquet where you will dine with him forever. So as you make your steps forward, in faith, trust, and as you trust, the heavens open, and you see your future. You see him waiting. The crown of thorns, king of kings, He's your groom, you are his bride, so go running to him. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray that you would send your spirit to be present with us, to make us know that this is real, you have done this for us. It's not just a great story, it's the greatest story that is true. Help us believe. In Jesus' name, amen.